0: Listener-supported, WNYC Studios.
1: It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. A new day, a new administration, a new chapter for American politics began this week.
2: We shall write an American story of hope not fear, of unity, not division, of light, not darkness, a story of decency and dignity, love and healing, greatness and goodness.
1: Now I came to Washington in 1991, and I've been lucky to witness eight inaugurations in my adopted hometown. Inauguration day here is like the 4th of July, just in January. There are American flags and bunting everywhere, Anyone who lives or works in a building near the Capitol plans viewing parties from their rooftops. The streets are bustling with visitors full of nervous energy and excitement. And, of course, there are fireworks. There's always fireworks. This year, of course, most of that was missing. The outgoing president, who still never acknowledged the new president by name, flew to Florida. Fear of violence, which had been unleashed just two weeks earlier by Trump's false claims of a stolen election, meant that the streets were filled with razor wire, soldiers, and military vehicles. Instead of cheering on the National Mall, all one could hear was the sound of the wind whipping through the flags placed there as stand-ins for the throngs of people who'd normally be crowded there. I appreciate the criticism of all this pomp and circumstance, that it oversells the role and responsibilities of the executive, who is, of course, just one part of our system of divided government. But I also believe that rituals are there to help keep us grounded, to give us structure. And in times of great tumult, like we're in right now, that can be healing. But we know it's not a cure-all. We know that millions watched that day with relief and hope for the future. But for millions of others, the day was marked by anxiety and maybe even anger. There are many challenges that lie ahead for the new administration— a raging pandemic that's killed more than 400,000 Americans, an economic crisis that has left nearly 16 million unemployed, climate change, social unrest, and a much-needed racial reckoning. The new president chose to spend much of his inaugural address focused on unity and optimism.
2: Bringing America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation. And I ask every American to join me in this cause, (laughs) uniting to fight the foes we face anger, resentment and hatred, extremism, lawlessness, violence, disease, joblessness, and hopelessness. With unity, we can do great things, important things.
1: But he also knows the challenges that lie ahead, not the least of which, a political and media culture that prizes cliques and confrontation
2: over all else. There is truth and there are lies, lies toll for power And for profit.
1: And of course, a Congress that his party just barely controls will make getting his agenda passed very
3: challenging. Question because the Senate has not officially passed a power-sharing agreement. The start of former President Donald Trump's impeachment trial. Republicans still control key Senate committees. GOP leaders Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy say the Biden administration apparently decided its first priority was to hurt American workers. Cabinet nominees could be stalled for some time unless Republicans and Democrats agree to move
1: them quickly. After four years of norm-busting, President Biden and his team are focused on a return to normal. But just how likely is that? Joining me to discuss all of this and where we go from here, Nick Fandos, congressional correspondent for the New York Times, Tolu Olinuripa, national political reporter at The Washington Post and Claire Malone, a freelance writer formerly of 5:38. Hey guys.
4: hey, Amy. Hey. Hey, Amy.
1: I'm so happy that you all joined me. Um, let's start with where we ended, and that is four years uh, of Donald Trump's presidency. And Claire, I want to start with you uh, by having you reflect on what you learned for the last four years, what it told us about America, what it told us and you about politics.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think this is, my reflection is kind of a mixture of of politics and, and being a journalist, but I, I think we, we witnessed a pretty alarming acceleration of a trend, which is the politicization of, of facts. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest structural civic wound that we're gonna have to deal with going forward and it will take a long time to fix. And Trump basically amplified, you know, a, a Fox media ecosystem, a conservative media ec- ecosystem that had been pretty insidious for a while. Um, so, I think that's a big problem to deal with. I mean, I will say it's not quite a silver lining, but I think a lot of Americans have become more attuned to you know, maybe our failings as the media or the country's failings narratively to convey the nuances of racism in America. And I think, you know, as the media and as the country, we've become more reflective about accepting the massive influence that we have on politics and people's actions by the way we we frame stories and, and convey facts. So to me, that those are the, the big things that I'm left with after four years of Trump in office and, and five years of him, frankly, dominating the national conversation.
1: Right, and you wrote a lot too uh, in a recent story actually about the way in which personality has trumped policy. I mean, I think we've known that for a while, but it seems that Trump sort of made this complete, right? That the attachment to the Republican Party we've, we in journalism have always attached to certain policies. And yet, when you see people flying Trump flags, it's pretty clear that it's no longer just about taxes and regulation, right?
5: Very much so. I mean, Trump kind of his great insight politically, was he realized that people didn't really care all that much about the the tax policies of Paul Ryan, they cared about, um, you know, what I think of as a sort of anti, you know, this contrarian strain, um, that that a lot of, you know, Republican, you know, party voters were embracing, because frankly, the, the GOP is a pretty white, uh, non-college ed- educated party in a country that's getting um, more and more diverse. And I think that there are inherent fears among that population of, you know, what's my place in American society going forward? And Trump's innovation was playing to those fears, playing to a contrarian, you know, uh, everyone is kind of against you theme. And it worked really well. And he had a big personality and he had a outsized place in the American mind for decades. And it was, you know, kind of a a magic formula. And I think we're gonna see that idea propagate even without Trump. The idea that uh, people don't care all that much about policy, that there's a lot you can do by just playing to, you know, race baiting or just contrarian, you know, against the American mainstream in order to win primary elections in particular in the Republican Party.
1: Yeah, I had one Republican strategist say to me not long ago that the issues mattered less and your successes, you know, what you've been able to accomplish as someone either in office or in, you know, in your life, your career mattered uh, so much less than whether you were attached to Donald Trump. Tolu, I, I want you to um, reflect on on this era as well, especially as somebody who covered him in the White House and covered his campaign. And and whether you think that this was just sort of a one-off, this is a unique person at this unique moment in time, obviously people are going to try to mimic him, but is that possible?
0: Well, there's no one else like Donald Trump. There's no one else who will be able to um, really capture the Republican Party the way he did in such a short time with his force of personality, with his willingness to be controversial with, in many cases, his willingness to embrace racism and the extreme fringes of his party and welcome them into sort of this big tent that he was able to create between traditional Republicans who do care about things like judges and tax cuts and more fringe level uh, people who maybe have not been attached to the Republican Party, but who voted in large numbers in 2016 and in 2020. Um, You know, everything ranging from the QAnon conspiracy theorists to the extreme right wing militia members to white supremacists. He was able to cobble together uh, a coalition that was relatively large and it helped him to win in 2016 and helped him to get even more votes in 2020. And there's no other politician at this point who's able to bring together that kind of coalition. Now, President Trump also split the coalition of the Republican Party in the final uh, days of his presidency by, you know, inspiring this insurrection. So it it remains to be seen where the party is going to go from here. But he was able to do something that it's going to be very difficult to replicate for any other Republican that, that does not have his background, his history in, in, in media, his um, his wealth, uh, and his personal story uh, that he's been able to, to fashion over the course of several decades. And uh, it'll be very difficult for anyone to replicate that. But I do think that several Republicans are now trying to do that, trying to build their own kind of Trumpy coalition to see if they can repeat what he did in 2016.
1: And Nick, talk to us about what Tolu talked about, the, the sort of splitting of the party after january 6th and the events up on capitol hill because you know it is clear that so many republican members were shaken by what happened really upset with the president um we know that he left on uh, inauguration day without elected officials or high-ranking officials showing him off at andrews air force base as he had hoped but then I, I listened most recently to, to Lindsey Graham, who warned the other day that the party is going to be adrift without them, without him. You know, they can't they can't leave him. He said the best way for the Republican Party to crack up is to try to move forward without Donald Trump. So what are Republicans on the Hill going to do?
4: It's a heck of a dilemma. And I've got to say, you know, for all the, the predictions about Republicans having to face these kind of cross currents and contradictions for the last five years um you know it it seems to actually be happening now um you know where um you have lawmakers in congress who are you know republicans only foothold now in washington um perhaps personified best by kevin mccarthy the republican leader in the house and mitch mcconnell the republican leader in the senate um, seem to be if, if if they're not adopting yet, they're they're kind of flirting with different schools of of thought on this. Mm-hmm. Um, McCarthy, whose conference in the House is much Trumpier, you know, it's a, it's a lot of um, politicians who are in very conservative districts um, who mimic the president's politics. Um, And have come into office, you know, during his four-year tenure, you know, seems much more interested, like Lindsey Graham, in kind of sticking with the president and saying he's the guy who's brought all these new voters into our party. He's the guy who got us into the White House. He's the guy who, um, you know, seventy-four million people, or at least a significant portion of those voters, were really animated by, um, and without him, we're in real trouble. And on the other side of the Senate, you have, you know, Mitch McConnell, who's you know, kind of become the um, prototypical Republican tactician who seems to be um, ready to break with Trump if he needs to, um, who sees that uh, the party's lost the White House, the House, and the Senate under his leadership, and perhaps they won't be able to move right. on uh, without him.
1: Nick, I want to pick up on where you left off talking about Mitch McConnell. He's now the minority leader, but he still has a lot of power, specifically holding up the so-called organizing principles, getting a 50-50 power sharing arrangement in place for running the Senate um, over issues like the filibuster and questions about where the impeachment trial goes. So can you help us understand what's going on and what, what this really means going forward for Biden and for his agenda?
4: Yeah, well, it's, it's uh, you know, as you started out by saying, there's a, there's a new White House, there's a new president, uh, but it's the same old Congress and I think yeah. Mitch McConnell is is pretty intent on um, gumming up the works as as best he can for this new administration, particularly you know as it pertains to um, democratic or liberal policies that he doesn't like. So you know here on on the full first full day of Democratic um, control in the Senate, he has um, held up what would normally be a pretty um, mundane organizing resolution, just kind of the rules of the road for the coming Congress. Um, with a demand that Democrats promise him they won't get rid of uh, the filibuster in the, in the next couple of years. Obviously, this is a, a pretty complicated issue for Democrats. A lot of them seem to be in favor of getting rid of the filibuster, one of kind of the last vestiges of minority rights in the Senate, because they say, um, you know, they can't give Republicans the opportunity to hold up um, an urgent Biden agenda on climate, on health, on coronavirus, um, et cetera. Now they're Democrats opposed to it, too. Um, but McConnell seems to be trying to force a big, messy democratic debate over this on day one, um not only to you know prevent the Senate from getting going, but to to drive some cracks into the Democratic party as as he's dealing with his own um, and his party. the The practical effect has been, you know, um, basically the Senate has not been able to do a whole lot. Uh, of anything or get going on on Biden's agenda. In fact, Republicans are still chairing the committees that are kind of the way stations of legislation and nominations right now until this agreement's in place.
1: I know, um, I think people don't realize that, right? Like this agreement has to get in place in order for Democrats to get their committee assignments and for the Exactly, it's, things it's to get wild. going. I, yeah. D-
4: Dick Durbin, who who is in line to be the chairman of the judiciary committee, was uh, was joking. He didn't know who was in charge of his committee. He said it could have been one of three people: him, or Lindsey Graham, uh, the old chairman, or Chuck Grassley, who's going to be the new top Republican. So it's it's kind of a state of suspended animation up there. And at the same time, um, you know, the Senate is preparing for the second impeachment trial of now former President Trump. Um, in in basically just a year, a proceeding that's going to slow everything to a halt, that's going to turn attention back to the last um, presidency and and all the divisions that it's owed. And to, to the conversation we were just having is going to be a very rare and very real way for Republicans to contemplate what role they want President Trump to play in their party going forward because they'll have an opportunity if they decide to convict him, which is a pretty high bar, Uh, To disqualify him from ever holding federal office again, which means, you know, no attempt to run for the presidency again in 2024 or anything else like that.
1: Tolu, let's talk about the challenge ahead then for Democrats on this issue of the filibuster. And it's one of those things that you know normally most people don't pay attention to Senate procedure, Um, but in this case, it would be a very big deal because it would allow the Senate to basically move like the House. You know, you pass something in the House. And it's going to make it through the Senate for the most part, which would mean a lot more legislation coming to the president's desk. But once you're out of power, which Democrats could be in the next two years after the midterms, then they lose their ability to to do much, especially if they see a new president in 2024 who's a Republican. So talk through this with us and where you think Democrats end up.
0: Yeah, there's a reason this is called the nuclear option, uh, in part because it's so much uh, of a shift in in how uh, the the Congress would work if it were to happen and why uh, there's so much resistance to it uh, among the minority parties once uh, the majority party's in power. Because, um, as Nick said, this is really the, the, the strongest power that the minority party has to slow things down or just stop things from happening in the Senate which they don't have in the House, and uh, according to Senate historians, they said this is what makes the Senate more of a deliberative body than the House. You have to try to build consensus. You have to try to bring people across the aisle and, and win them over. I haven't seen much of that in, in recent years, and that's part of the reason why there's so much angst about uh, getting rid of the filibuster, because it has not been used to create you know, deliberation and bipartisanship. Instead, it's been used to block anything from happening, and we've seen most legislation that has come to the Senate, especially over the past couple of years and divided Congress, um, die in the Senate in part because, you know, Senate Majority Leader now seem to be the minority leader, Mitch McConnell had the final say and if he did not want something that had passed through the house even if it passed with bipartisan support in the house if he did not want it to go to the senate or even get a hearing in the senate it, it died there and i think that's why a large number of democrats especially progressive democrats are pushing on the biden administration and pushing on democrats in the senate to get rid of the filibuster because they say if they don't do that biden can really kiss the idea of having a consequential presidency Uh, Goodbye, because, you know, he's not going to be able to convince Mitch McConnell and Republicans to get on board with his his agenda. They're going to be trying to block things just as they did during the Obama administration. If they don't get rid of the filibuster, then it's going to be very hard for them to do the kind of legislation that Biden ran on. And then it will be very hard for him to get reelected or for Democrats to get reelected by saying that we did what we promised, because they won't be able to do a lot of the things they promised if they keep this uh, filibuster in place, which allows a minority of uh, of Republicans to block legislation from going forward. Now, Biden has not said that he's in in favor of getting rid of rid of the filibuster. He's talked about unity. He's talked about working across the aisle. He worked in the Senate for 36 years, while there was a filibuster in place, and he's trying to get back to that kind of uh, bipartisan horse trading, where you're able to convince some people within the opposite party to get on board with your agenda and then you can pass something with 60 votes. So that's what he's hoping to do. It really remains to be seen whether or not that's going to be possible in the 21st century.
1: Claire, we've come off of four years of norm busting and we had a candidate running, basically saying, I'm going to bring back normal and it's going to go back to the times of bipartisanship and we're going to go back to the old rules and we're still having fights over whether the filibuster should exist. And And it seems to me that while voters may have said in 2020 that they didn't like, didn't want another four years of Donald Trump and the style and the way he uh, pursued the presidency, but that they aren't they also aren't wedded to like going back to normal. And maybe we're still stuck. It does feel like Washington's still stuck. in either you got to go back to the way things have always been or you got to go the Trump way instead of saying, why can't we
5: be a little more creative than that? Where do you think things go? It's such an interesting question because we've all been so, I think, cranked up, ratcheted up during the <laughs> Trump years. Politics became pop culture, certainly because of Trump. But also, I would say, you know, Bernie Sanders caught a wave of popular interest in, in 2016. Elizabeth Warren did in 2020 by talking about these big, you know, t- t- to crib the Warren phrase, big structural changes. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is, you know, because because a lot of people, you know, I think there are people who do want to not have to open the paper and have a heart attack over what was happening. There's certainly like a comfort in people finding uh, polit- politics to be a little bit dull. But on the other hand, I think we've also seen a, uh, over the past four years, a lot of, it's a bit of a moment for these, let's change the institutions, let's change the structures kind of, kind of um, proposals. And, and I think particularly from the democratic side, I mean, if you talk to progressive activists, um they will say glad biden won but uh we have two years where we basically have control over washington and we should get some big changes done you know you hear people talk about uh statehood for dc and puerto rico uh you hear people talking you know i don't think court packing at the supreme court level will happen but there's there are uh, interest groups that are pushing reforms of the federal judiciary that would be you know less headline grabby but certainly would uh, would plump up the feeder system for Democrats. So I think it's a really interesting question to see play out over the next six months. And I do have this sense that you know you've 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 certainly activated a large pop you know a large segment of the American population to care about politics right. and also to be incredibly cynical about politics. So how can we how can we go back to to you know four years ago, even if that's what Biden has, you know ran his entire campaign on,
1: right. And this idea that just because you're making a change means that you are disrespecting norms, right? There has to be some balance between making structural change, but it does, I mean, it's going to be disruptive, but we've come to see now disruption as being only bad, right?
5: Yeah, exactly. I think what we will see is a tone change, at least right. from you know, there'll be a huge effort to change the tone, certainly from the Biden White House. But frankly, I mean, even from potentially someone like Mitch McConnell being a little bit more, um, you know, he doesn't have to go along with President Trump's rhetoric, right? He can be, he can kind of return to a little bit more of this, and this this might be for for worse, right? Where where politicians can kind of hide behind mealy-mouthed things, and and <laughs> and at least with Trump, right. you kind of you 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 often knew exactly what he was thinking. Um, but but yeah, I think we will see a, a different tone change. But I don't know. It's a really it's a really interesting question about where the psychology of the American electorate will be and their capacity for um, dramatic politics over the next couple of years.
1: Nick Fandos. Congressional correspondent for The New York Times, Tolu Olanaripa, is a national political reporter at The Washington Post. Claire Malone is a freelance writer. I thank you all for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Getting the economy back on track, of course, is a top priority for the Biden administration. Entire sectors of the U.S. economy remain closed because of the pandemic. Women, especially women of color, have borne the brunt of this downturn. Just before his inauguration, President Biden introduced a $1.9 trillion stimulus package that would, among other things, give $1,400 direct payments to Americans, increase unemployment insurance payments, and provide more funding for childcare. I spoke with Heather Long, economics correspondent for The Washington Post, and Derek Thompson, a staff writer at The Atlantic, about the economic challenges facing Biden and whether this stimulus package is the right approach.
3: Joe Biden is inheriting the weirdest economy possibly in American history. On the one hand, you look at the unemployment rate, you look at the leisure hospitality industries, you look at retail, and you'd think, this is the worst depression in American history by far. I mean, you have essentially something like a mandated shutdown of the leisure and hospitality industry. And it's resulted in catastrophic job losses across industries uh, that are disproportionately female and disproportionately low income. It is an immense crisis that includes not only lost income uh, among these sectors, uh, but also a housing crisis, evictions. And in many cases, people are having a harder time making ends meet and feeding their family. On the other hand, you look at the stock market, which is at an all-time high you look at personal income, which somehow grew in 2020 because of the CARES Act, and because of these stimulus bills. So the way I think about it is not that the horror of the economy is somehow illusory, but rather that it is disproportionately centered in the parts of the economy that rely on people getting out of their house and doing stuff. And when we can get out of our house and do stuff, as I think we will be able to do in 2021, I think we are in a decent position, if we get things right, to create, say, a quarter or two of growth in this country that we haven't seen in a hundred years or maybe ever.
1: Heather, I want you to to talk about that piece that Derek raised about. Okay, this vaccine rolls out, people feel confident, they've got all this money to spend, they start spending it. Isn't that going to be great for all the people who've been laid off? from their jobs in the hospitality industry and travel industry. But you've written about this before that those jobs aren't necessarily going back. Some have already been automated. And some of these folks have have moved on
6: there's pretty widespread agreement that 2021 is going to be, to use a Trump word, a rocket ship year for GDP growth for the economy and probably for stocks. But the big question mark is how quickly are all of these jobs going to come back? How many of those 10 million people who lost that job in April or March of last year and still haven't gotten it back are going to get it back in 2021? And there's a huge range of beliefs about how fast those jobs are going to come back. But most of it is going to come down to two things. One that Derek was just talking about how comfortable, how quickly and comfortable do people feel to go out again, even after they get a vaccine. And I was talking to a bartender in Miami, and he said, you know, Florida is open. I go to my bar every day. But he said, let me tell you, on New Year's Eve last year, I made $800. On New Year's Eve 2021, he only served two people. The whole night and so even in this in this context where things are open again you know how quickly are going to people going to come back and the other one as you rightly point out is the automation uh, we've seen companies like chewy that does the dog food and the various pet supplies online that company has been having a great year in the online sales boom but they just opened their first fully automated warehouse. And so that's a lot of jobs that are never going to happen at that company. And that kind of thing is repeating across the economy. And so we just don't know how many of those jobs will actually return in 2021. And that's a huge onus on the Biden administration.
1: Before we get to the big stuff that the Biden administration is talking about, trying to push through Congress, this $1.9 trillion stimulus, Let's talk about first, Heather, the executive orders that um, President Biden is now signing on to or is expected to sign on to an eviction and foreclosure moratorium, extending a pause on student loans. How much can that help? And for how long can that work?
6: This is really a Band-Aid. This is something that they're trying to do to just give a little bit more protection until hopefully their next stimulus package passes. In my mind, what they're signaling here with these executive orders is the deadline to take action is is basically March. If you don't act by March, we're going to try to do something through reconciliation or we're going to try to do more executive orders.
1: So Derek, let's get to the heart of this issue, which is this stimulus bill, this $1.9 trillion. And so much of the conversation in, in Washington now is about not making the mistakes of the 2009-2010 era on stimulus where there seems to be a consensus that the Obama administration went too small. They didn't go big enough, fast enough. And and you, in your most recent article, say, you know, instead of trying to n- seek change in Americans' behavior with subtle technocratic nudges, as Barack Obama's team did— Biden should aim to make his signature policies as stupidly straightforward as possible. Where the Obama administration approach was too often clever and strewn with budgetary wonkiness, the Biden formula should be embrace the opposite, big, fast, and simple. That sounds great, Derek, big, fast, and simple. But can that really
3: work in a Congress that's divided 50-50? Let's look at some places where we can go big and fast and simple. Uh, Let's look at, for example, income distribution. In the Obama stimulus plan of 2009, uh, they wanted to go about this in a very subtle and nudgy way. Their idea was, okay, if we give people a bunch of money in one check, it's gonna be really obvious that we're giving them money and they might save that money because we're in the middle of a recession. What we should do instead is use this sneaky nudgy policy, uh, making work pay, where we modestly reduce payroll taxes So Americans are going to look at their bank account and see a little more money than they expected, and they'll spend that immediately. Well, the problem with that policy, and it's really, I think, important to be clear about what was wrong with that policy. It's not that it didn't work. It worked, and no one knew that it worked. It made people richer, but almost by hypnosis. People had no idea they were getting richer, and so Obama didn't get credit for the policy, and he lost catastrophically in the 2010 midterms. Politics isn't just about doing good. You have to do good in a way that people give you credit for. So what did Donald Trump propose uh, when it was too late to save uh, his presidential bid? $2,000 checks. It's an extremely popular policy. It might have been partially responsible for helping Democrats sweep the Georgia uh, Senate runoffs, and Biden has been warm to it. I think that $2,000 checks, or more likely $1,400 checks, that top off the $600 people have already gotten, does a couple of things very effectively. First, it gets people money uh, in a universal way. So you can't talk about means testing and you can't talk about deservedness. Everyone is getting the money in the middle of a uh, recession, but also it does so in a way that's really obvious. It is people are gonna self-consciously and fist-pumpingly be elated when they realize that Biden has made them $2,000 richer. He'll get credit for that policy and people will be behind, more, more likely to be behind him as he continues to sort of check off the boxes um, of, his, of his sort of budget rundown or of his uh, policy priorities. Um, so I think that if you're looking to go big, fast and simple, a really good way to do that is to focus uh, on these checks. As I wrote, it's maximally awesome. And awesomeness is really important in politics. Popularity is important in politics. Joe Biden needs the country behind them. If he's going to start to do things like climate policy or immigration policy, he needs to do those with a lot of political capital. Can't think of a better, simpler, faster way to buy that political capital than just giving us all thousands of dollars.
1: You know, it's funny, Derek, because I had a conversation the other day with a Democratic strategist that I've known for a long time. And we were talking through some of this and he said, you know, part of the challenge Democrats have is they don't recognize the role, he said, sheer confidence plays in leading and governing. Hmm. And, you know, I think back to the Obama era and even going into the 2012 re-election campaign, there was this sense that they couldn't boast too much about how good the economy was because they were worried that doing so would not appropriately honor the people who weren't doing well, right? I mean, even when the economy is going gangbusters, there are still people who are struggling. And so it seems to be this challenge almost unique to to Democrats that by tooting their horn, what they're also doing is glossing over the problems that are still there. Do you see that as being part of the challenge too for Democrats? Is just like coming out and saying, we're awesome. And yeah, there's still some things to fix. But Let's just, you know, keep going big and fix it for everybody eventually.
3: Yeah, I I agree with your political consultant friend. Um, I think that Democrats overthought this in like 2009. I think they overthought uh, the deficit problem, and I think they overthought the subtlety problem. Um, making work pay was a... <laughs> Was, was too clever as a policy. It was akin to political hypnosis. The idea was that if people get richer and they don't even know they get richer, they will respond to that surprise of sneaky wealth by spending a little bit more money on socks. But that doesn't do anything for you if you're running for re-election in 23 months. The goal of politics isn't just to do good, brainy stuff. It's to do good, brainy, popular stuff that keeps you in power so you can do more good stuff. And I think that, you know, as... as stupidly straightforward as just giving people checks of $1,000, $600, $2,000 is. It's it's so much simpler than uh, making work pay, than a, than a settled tax credit. And some people might associate simplicity with stupidness, but I associate simplicity with forward thinking. If people know that you're helping them, then they will give you credit for helping them. And they will reward you for the credit they are giving you for helping them by re-electing you. But Heather, let's talk about this because
1: this stimulus package had a lot of other stuff in there other than just a stimulus check. There's this proposal for a raise in the minimum wage to $15 an hour. There are tax credits for children. There's money for state and local budgets that was not included in the final deal that passed Congress before the election. So is the Biden administration, though, kind of falling into the challenge that we saw for Obama in 2009, this idea that you could wrap all of this other stuff into a big package rather than just saying, let's just give out more checks? Yes, try to do as much as we can to make sure that the state and local budget money is there, too. But mostly we got to focus on getting people money and getting the vaccine distribution and testing In order. When we bring in other issues, it's going to make it easier for Republicans to say no.
6: You're exactly right, I, Amy. I thought one of the most consequential things that happened in recent days was when Mitt Romney just came out and called Biden's proposal for the 1.9 trillion not well timed. You know, he had said we had just passed 900 billion package over the holidays. You know, let's give that time and see what happens. And that's one of the swing votes. You know, that's one of the Republican votes that mm-hmm. that's more centrist that they're trying to lure. And you're right. And in, in recent days, there's been chatter on the Hill exactly what you said, that if Biden wants to go and have a truly bipartisan package, it would probably the easiest solution would just be those checks, those (laughs) confetti cannon checks that everyone seems to like, plus some more money for vaccine distribution. Something like that probably could pass easily with the 60 votes. Uh, But the more they add on, there's obviously huge resistance to state and local aid. You know How much would they give to daycares or public transit systems or the $15 minimum wage? proposal is, has certainly made a lot of Republicans green uh, and not in a good way. And so I, I think that's really the biggest, I mean, this is really your realm, Amy, the political side, but this is really the biggest decision Biden's going to have to make early on. You know, does he try to do this in a bipartisan way, in which case this bill is going to get a lot smaller? Or does he say, no, we need to go big, as Derek was arguing, we don't want to make the same mistake we did before. And so we're going to do as close to the one point nine trillion as we can get, which means we're probably only going to use Democrats to do it, which means we're going to use one of our reconciliation chances that we have in twenty twenty one, which means he probably won't get other stuff on his agenda done this year right that's a right. tough that's a tough, tough call. It
1: is a tough call. So Derek, where do you think he should go? Because it does seem as if, and again, this changes every minute. but Democrats seem to be sort of accepting the fact that it they're not going to get ten. Republican vote on a package this big, you've got Biden saying uh, at his inaugural address, you know, unity, he's been pledging bipartisanship, reaching out to the other side. And he's also getting pressure from Democrats and others making a similar case to yours, which is you've got this one chance you've got a Democratic control of the House and the Senate. Yeah, it's narrow, but we have a, a vehicle to do this called reconciliation Let's get everything we can now, because you know what? Given history, we're probably going to lose. Democrats would say Democrats are probably going to lose at least one of those bodies of Congress next year anyway. So if you want anything big and you also propose doing more on on child poverty, do it now.
3: I don't think that the Biden administration should try to do it all at once. Um, Mm -hmm. I think you go big, fast and simple on each policy priority, but you don't do every big, fast and simple thing at the same time because that you, then you can't go fast. We're in the middle of a plague. There are 4,000 people, 3,000 people dying every single day. This is an emergency and you handle emergencies immediately. You don't try to sneak in minimum wage hikes, which I happen to be in favor of when you're trying to save the economy and human lives from a plague. You don't try to sneak in immigration reform, which I am also in favor of in emergency bill where you're trying to save people from a plague. I think it's procedurally wrong to try to shoehorn every single liberal policy priority that exists into an emergency COVID bill. I think it seems clever. I think it seems strategic. But I think where it ends up is that you end up getting lost in mansion land for weeks. You end up pissing off the conservative Democrats and the, I suppose, liberal Republicans that you might need, although maybe not for reconciliation. You get lost in mansion land for weeks and meanwhile people are dying in hospitals of a plague and you are losing the very popularity that you're trying to buy. So what I would do if I were a what I would tell Biden if I were his advisor is I would say first things first, you know, the same way that FDR didn't sign social, the Social Security Act in his third week of office, you know, he waited until uh, uh, 1935 years after he uh, sort of saved the economy from the worst parts of the depression, save the economy and save the country from the worst parts of the plague first, do the COVID bill give money for vaccines, give money to hospitals, give people checks. Then we will talk about doing a reconciliation bill that's a a grab bag of democratic policy priorities.
1: Heather, I want to have you address a topic that you've spent so much time covering and and doing such good work on on shining a light on this, and that's the number of women and, and the disproportionate number of women, especially women of color who have lost their jobs during this time. I was just really struck by... The fact that 100% of the jobs lost in December were jobs held by women. What is this going to mean for women's place in the workforce, not just in 2021, but thinking out through the next few years here? Have women lost so much of the gains they made over the last 20, 30 years?
6: Well, the short answer is yes. I'll never forget a year ago, sitting at the World Economic Forum, listening to the Prime Minister of Japan at the time, lecturing about how Japan had just surpassed the United States in women's labor force participation. And for years Japan was the country you never wanted to be on women's labor force participation they notoriously had really bad and poor laws around getting women into the workforce and keeping women there and so even before the pandemic hit even before this devastating year we've just lived through the United States was already falling behind most of the other advanced countries Canada is leagues ahead of us many parts of Europe and even Japan And so I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are starting to call on Biden to do some sort of Marshall plan for women, if you will, and Mm -hmm. some sort of, uh, and I think he would like to do various parts of that in terms of things like expanding paid sick leave, expanding parental leave, finding more of these ways to keep women in the, in the workforce going forward. But the big challenge right away, of course, is what we've just been talking about, which is so many women, particularly women of color, are employed in the service sector. And this big question mark about will these jobs come back? And even more importantly, I don't think this gets enough attention, what wage will the jobs come back Mm -hmm. at? And that, I think, has been a real eye-opener to me as I speak to unemployed people almost every day, as I think about a woman who cleans homes in New Orleans, Allie, and she told me, you know, she got finally got clients back in, in the summer and into the fall, but she used to clean a you know, big home for maybe $200. And now she does it for 75 and, you And know, that's less than half of what she mm-hmm. was earning before. And is she going to be able to creep those prices up a little bit this year? Maybe. But back to 200 that could take years. And that's the real loss that's very hard to see in the data right away. But that's the real loss we're combating, not just we have to get the women back, but we have to get them back on a career track and on a wage track that is so monumental uh, a task.
1: Well, Derek and Heather, I really appreciate you all coming in. This has been a great conversation.
6: Thank you. Thanks, Amy.
3: While some colleges ramped up police presence on campus, others responded to protest against Israel's war in Gaza by giving students a seat at the table. I'm Kai Wright, and on the next Notes from America, meet a young negotiator from Brown University. We'll explore what divestment actually means and how views of victory in this movement vary depending on where you sit. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
5: That I will well and faithfully discharge.
1: That I will well and faithfully discharge
7: the duties of the office on which I am about to enter.
1: The duties of the office upon which I am about to enter. So help me God. So help Thank me God. You. Right. Thank you. Vice president. Even just saying it gives me goosebumps. That's Stephanie Shriak, president of Emily's List. She's also the author of Run to Win lessons in leadership for women changing the world. Stephanie has spent her professional life in politics and the last decade at EMILY's List working to get pro-choice Democratic women elected to office. While much has changed for women in politics since the early 90s, this week's swearing-in of Kamala Harris as vice president was a moment to take stock of.
7: Through my tears, and they were many tears of joy, I just really thought through all of the work I had been part of it, Emily's List, and what Emily's List has done to get to this moment, and and knowing uh, Vice President Harris and what that what that moment and what her leadership is going to mean for little girls and little boys all across this country, it it's almost overwhelming to me, and it's just such an honor to even have a little part of this journey of hers and of this countrys
1: you know i think the expectation was in 2015 and 2016 hillary clinton first woman on the ballot as a as a presidential candidate in her own right that was going to be the year we'd see record numbers of women running and there were, there were but it wasn't until donald trump took office that you saw the explosion of women and i i want you to to talk a little bit about that and and what it may tell us about the incentive structure here, that having a woman on the ballot may have inspired some women to run, to get involved, but it really was having Donald Trump in office. That seemed to be the bigger catalyst.
7: Well, I always say the one thing we don't know, because it didn't happen, is what what would have been if Hillary Clinton had become president of the United States, and how that would have inspired uh, women to step up and rise up and to have a a President Hillary Clinton calling upon women to rise up and step up to run for office. So I'm always a little careful about this question because we don't actually know what would have happened. But clearly the election of Trump was a catalyst that happened immediately where women of all backgrounds and all geographies and all professions said, I got to get involved now in a way that I have never thought about it before. And if that guy, if that guy gets to be president and, and ruin my community, then I sure can be the person who runs for office and steps up and fights against that. The numbers, Amy, and you've seen that, and we're over 60,000 women now who have contacted Emily's List through a variety of ways are uh, looking to run for office. Uh, some have run, some are planning their runs, some are looking down the road. But this isn't a moment and it's not going away. And I do not believe it's slowing down.
1: Thinking about women who don't want to run for office, but want to be involved in politics. And so your book talks a lot about what it takes to be a candidate. But I want to talk to you about the women who are actually involved in these campaigns. Traditionally, you'd see women in finance or organizing in the field, but not so many in those top sort of front-facing jobs. Obviously, we know a woman ran Joe Biden's campaign, so things are changing. But is that enough? And what about getting more women of color into those more high-profile jobs?
7: I have definitely uh, seen over the last few decades an increase of of women leading as campaign managers, comms directors uh, slowly breaking into the digital front, but that's starting to happen now too. That was a slow go to start with. And we are uh, now being much more intentional also of getting women of color in, in these positions as well, because that, that we're really far behind. And I can see that as campaign managers, little tiny bit better on comms, uh, fund fundraising is I hate to say uh, a, a very white profession. We got to stop that. We got to break that. Uh, and and slowly but surely, I, I think we will. But we've got to be intentional about it. And that's like all of this just doesn't happen naturally. If it did, we wouldn't be talking about it. I remember when. I because I started in finance. So I was a fundraiser. That was my specialty. And uh, my for my first paid gig for a candidate was finance director for uh, the now late Mary Reeder uh, in Minnesota's first congressional district um, back in 1996. And that was like what women did. And I, I hardly knew anybody who had crossed over and I moved to the committees and uh, worked at uh, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. And if you took a snapshot of us in in 1999, it was like almost all, not all, but almost all of the finance people were women and almost all of the political folks were men. I mean, it was stunning. And oh, almost all white. And it is just so, so shocking. And so when I made the transition from finance to campaign management uh, because, um, frankly, uh, JB Persch, uh, who was uh, running the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee at the, at the time, was willing to give me a shot. Uh, in fact, two years before that, Jim Jordan, at the, who was executive director a couple a couple years before that, also gave me a shot. I mean, two, so two white guys gave, did give me, in fact, a shot. Um, and JB, though, uh Really did invest some time to getting me on John Tester's race as the campaign manager, and and John was fine with it. And I, I didn't even think about the gender component of it until some of my girlfriends in finance went, "How did you do that? Like you crossed over? It was like it was like I walked on water and it came out on the other side." And I just, I said, well, I mean, part of, part of it is that it's what I wanted. Uh, I, I always thought of myself as a generalist in a lot of other ways because of my master's in political management from George Washington University, uh, even though I was, a, I was a specialist in finance. You know, and I had some folks who believed in me at the right time and now i feel very committed to getting more women and particularly women of color moved up these ranks cuz i think it really really matters how things are managed
1: the other thing you talk about in your book is the importance for candidates to be able to to tell their story and i think about this a lot as i interview candidates men and women and um I'm always surprised maybe that they aren't more connected to telling their stories of what got them into politics and just that politics is is narrative as much as as anything else. And you talk in the book about your own story and your own health challenges and the challenge of, of telling that. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, about... How getting women to tell their stories is part of the challenge of getting them to be successful candidates and and how you go about changing that?
7: Well, I think for so long, our culture and our society have told women or educated women or or stewed them in the misogyny of the of the culture to be perfect and to fit in that box and that their stories don't matter as much. And so when, you, when you're going out though, and it, in hindsight, it's ridiculous because when you are trying to get people to invest their vote in you, they and because the, that's what you're asking people to do. You're, you're asking for their investment of vote, the one very personal thing that we all have as, a, as American citizens. And the way to do that is by connecting and by connecting with your authentic self being who you are and not trying to be what they told you you're supposed to be. Uh, And for the generations of women who I am so grateful to, who broke through all those doors. So frankly, so you and I could walk through them. uh, They had to really fit in that box and sort of sort of be a masculine version of themselves because no, nobody was ready for the feminine strength that, that we bring to the system. And so finally, like really breaking through and getting candidates, women candidates to say, I, instead of, we, to, to tell their family stories and without fear. That you were going to be punished because you were a mom, or to tell your health story and be punished because you weren't perfectly healthy. You know, I I I went through that. I mean, I had a debate uh, in the book. I do, as you reference, uh, talk about the stroke I had uh, in September of nineteen. In fact, while writing this book, and we had a huge. Well, I'll say a huge, I had a huge debate in my head. I'm not sure, I'm sure my staff did that, about um, transparency. And we knew quickly the most important thing was to be transparent with what was going on with with our staff and and the board. But a friend of mine called and said, are you sure? Are you sure you want to tell folks this? And I thought to myself, once you, once you hide something like that, you lose trust. And that's what this is all about. Uh, and if I'm going to be better, uh, which thankfully I am, I need everybody's support and help on top of it. And I need understanding. And honestly, it has made me closer to my staff. It has helped me connect with so many more people in a very different way, particularly in the pandemic uh, where folks are getting very sick and I can I can hear their fears and understand where they're coming from. This is how you not just lead, but be part of a community to make change. And that's where the story and the narrative is so powerful. It's what we've been doing as humans,
1: since the very beginning? Why wouldn't we continue doing it? Was your worry that people would think that you were weak? Like, how could a person? Yes. You, you're obviously not strong enough to run an organization. Or was it that people would think that Emily's List now was going to suffer? What, 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 what were the things going through your mind as you said you were worried about revealing this?
7: I, th- I think the first was she wasn't going to be able to do the job as well as well uh and and so that was you know a little frightening and then how is that going to reflect on the organization and then you start thinking well does that mean the vultures are going to come around and try to pick off parts of your programs and uh and that's not what happened and it's it's sad that i even went through that thinking that thought process not that that stuff doesn't happen. I mean, let's not pretend that politics is all, you know, rainbows and sunshine. <laughs> it's, it's not, this is a tough game that we're in. Uh, but when you build long-term relationships with your colleagues, with your counterparts, uh, and ultimately when you're serving in elected office with your voters and your constituents, there's a lot of willingness to support in the bad times. And that's the power of this. And that's what I've had. I, I've had unbelievable support uh, from our elected officials, from my counterparts at other organizations, from my own staff. And, and I share that with a lot of our folks, um, particularly candidate, potential candidates, who've got very powerful stories. And I was like, your story is going to relate to 10s, if not hundreds of thousands of people in your district. It just will because we have so many shared experiences.
1: Stephanie Shriott, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me.
7: Anytime. And I just thank you, Amy, for everything that you do and have always done uh, for American politics. I love. It's been fun to, I don't know, grow up in uh, our political
1: careers together. <laughs> Here's one more thing from me today. We're gonna hear a lot of talk about unity, bipartisanship and healing in these next few weeks, and let's face it, we need it. But let's not mistake unity for agreement, compromise for charity, or speed for success. We've become so addicted to political strategy by Twitter that we lack the patience and purpose that is required to actually do politics. I know a lot of folks have been heartened by a return to a pre-Trumpian of politics, where we have predictability and order and tradition. But the challenge for politicians in this time is to find that sweet spot between respecting the system and shaking it up. Many Americans want politics to be less combative, but they also want it to be competent. That means throwing out some of the long held traditions or rules. Well, so be it. For example, getting rid of the Senate filibuster is going to open a political Pandora's box. No one really knows what its long term implications will be but is that a good enough reason to keep it in place? Especially when it's clear that the status quo isn't working. Donald Trump assaulted our institutions by undermining and degrading them. But we can't protect them by covering them in bubble wrap and filing them away. To preserve our institutions, we have to be willing to adapt them. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett and Vince Fairchild were our directors and sound designers. Sham Sundra was our board op this week. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.